Welcome to FinTech at Kellogg, a podcast where we'll shed light on the innovative people, ideas, and technology that are transforming the financial service landscape as we know it. I'm your host, John Cambers, and today we have part one of a two-part episode with Bruno Laval from the class of 94. From 2004 to 2018, Bruno was the founder and CEO of Laval, a technology firm that provided SaaS solutions to major U.S. pharmaceutical companies. But recently, Bruno left the title of CEO to pursue several cryptocurrency ventures. In part one, we talked to Bruno about this decision, how he got involved in cryptocurrency, and why he thinks stablecoins are going to be the next big thing of 2018. And without further ado, here it is. Hello, everyone. This is another episode of the FinTech at Kellogg podcast. I'm your host, John Cambris, and I'm co-hosting today with Professor Sarit Markovich, who's the Associate Chair of Kellogg's Strategy Department and who teaches a class in Innovation in Financial Service Markets. So, Professor, thank you for agreeing to come on and co-host today. Thanks for having me. And our guest today is Bruno Laval from the class of 94. Bruno has recently left his position of CEO at the company he founded to work on a cryptocurrency venture. Bruno, thanks for joining us. Really excited to get you on today and really excited to hear about this new venture. Thank you, John. Really happy to be here. So we'd love to start off today by just having you uh, briefly introduce yourself and describe your path after Kellogg, how you got from that point after Kellogg to where you are today. Uh, yes. Before getting into that, I want to say that I just saw the building for the first time today. And what an amazing place. Uh, I, my, my alumni money went to good use. I mean, this is beautiful. This is really wonderful. I, 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 I plan maybe to come back here maybe in... Uh, there is, there is some sort of remedial classes that I could join, maybe your class, Professor. So should. I, I hope I will. So, yes, I graduated in 94. The building at the time was a very small building uh, on the other side of the campus. And uh, I'm from France originally, as you can tell from my uh, accent. I live in San Francisco. Um, and um, after Kellogg, actually, during my two years at Kellogg, I did finance. I worked for Lehman Brothers. <laughs> Um, and uh, nearly took the pass of finance. But instead, I joined IBM. At the time, they were working on some of the project that became, um, it was called at the time, Deep Blue, and later on it became Watson. So, uh, applying that in healthcare in particular. And, and I built a career in management consulting within IBM and new technologies, etc. Branched out to start a first company in bioinformatics. Again, information it was very, always very interesting to me. Uh, before starting a second company, uh, which is my, the current company I just uh, uh, transitioning from, which is at the intersection between the pharma industry and data. So we sell, we're a SaaS company, software as a service. We sell data to pharmaceutical companies. We are like a, like a sort of mini Bloomberg, if you will. Uh, and I, I built that company over many years. We have about 100 people. Uh, what's unique about it is that we're completely distributed. We have uh, people all over the world. My executive assistant is in Mexico. My head of people ops is in uh, Colombia. And, and my, my new CEO, who I just promoted to CEO, is based in Detroit. I actually never met her in person. I worked with her for eight years. She's wonderful. I, I, I could work for her very easily. She's really incredible. And I decided, as you alluded to, I decided a few weeks ago, uh, well, I, more than a few weeks ago, but, I, but a few weeks ago it became effective, to transition from being the CEO of the company to be chairman. And uh, Aviva Friedman is now the CEO. And I decided that because 
Um, first, I don't think they need me anymore. They're doing very well without me. But also because I feel that the field of crypto right now is a, a really unique time in business. I don't think there's any other time in the history of business where you had so much change and so much economics as well at stake in such a narrow period of time. And um, so I'm very excited about it. I think it's going to change a lot of things, and uh, I decided to, um, uh, to be part of it. Well, it's really interesting. So was there one event that led you down the, the crypto rabbit hole? Um, you know, usually someone says, well, I read an article that was really interesting, or I had a friend explain it to me, or you know, I, I came across it on, on Hacker News. Was there that one moment that you heard about it, and from that point, um, this is what you want, knew what you wanted to, to research? So I, I did purchase a few, uh, a few coins uh, back in 2013, and, and then I, I forgot about it for some time until uh, the, the market reminded me that uh, there was something there. Best way to do it, uh, buy them yeah. and forget about it. <laughs> so, um, uh, in, and then it, it became apparent to me that it was something really, really serious happening. And, uh, I mean, I went through the, the, the bubble, uh, the Internet bubble, uh, mm-hmm. which, in my view, actually never really went down because, in a sense, Amazon and Google came from that bubble. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and in, in aggregate, these two are, are huge. So, in a way, the bubble never went down. The, the pets.com exited. The souffle went down a little bit. The pets.com left. So, I went through that bubble, and, um, uh, and I, I felt that... It was a little bit the same thing with two differences. Number one, uh, I felt that we were not in 1999, despite the crazy valuation, but we were actually in 1994 or three. And the reason I thought that is that we haven't done anything yet. There's nothing happening on the blockchain yet. <laughs> Just speculation mm-hmm. right now, right? So if, if, if we really believe that crypto and the blockchain is going to deliver... It hasn't delivered yet. There's no stable coin. We talked. To, we, I think we'll talk about stable coin. It's not used for payment. I went to that conference in Miami, the Bitcoin North America conference, yes. and they decided not to accept Bitcoin anymore. <laughs> Why? Because it's too. Right? It's 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 not stable enough to be a good method of payment, and so it feels that it's still very very early. That's one uh, reason. The other reason is that. Um, Potentially, it could be bigger than the Internet. Now, who knows? But certainly, I believe it could be. And the reason it could be is that the Internet is about information, really. And crypto is about value, trust, and money. And when you can think about all of the applications of programmable money um, uh, in, in dealing with trust and value... Uh, uh, embedded into software, as opposed to dealing with really information. Mm-hmm. Intuitively, I think that has to be bigger and more important. So that's why I decided uh, I'm still very young. <laughs> this is a time for me to get into uh, this, uh, this field. One thing you mentioned just now was this idea of a stable coin. And one of the criticisms of cryptocurrency in general is that there's too much volatility. So if something's too volatile, then we can't 
make anything of substance on a blockchain right? if, if the price is going to move up and down. Stablecoins aim to solve this problem. Now, there's centralized stablecoins, like, like Tether would be an example, and then there's plenty of decentralized stablecoin projects. Can you talk a little bit about um, stablecoins in general for our audience that may be uh, unfamiliar, maybe describe mm-hmm. what a stablecoin is, and then just talk about your interest in them? Yeah, sure, sure. So, um, so the reason why um, the current currencies are not good for payment, really, is that uh, they're too volatile. So I don't know how much, really, I'm going to pay for something because it's changing so much. Yeah? And we were talking in, in before this meeting, we were talking about Venezuela, right. when inflation is such that the second beer you're getting might be twice the price of the first one because during a single day, the value of the currency changes so much. But in a way the current cryptocurrencies are also way too volatile to be payment system. Now, the original promise of crypto is to pay stuff, to pay for your coffee, to pay for, your, uh, for, for anything you want to buy. Now, that's not, that's not happening yet. And to do that, we will need to do something stable enough. Um, the Bitcoin is not stable enough uh, for this. So, yes, so there are some cases where people buy this and, and that, a uh, house or car, but it's really, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of an anecdotal use. So it's not stable enough for payment. So payment right now is not within reach. And some people in the crypto field think that it's going to take a while, actually, mm-hmm. before payment is an actual use case, as opposed to store value, which is store value and speculation, especially speculation, are current use cases that, that work. So, so in order to do payment, you need a, a stable coin. Now, the, the dominant stable coin right now is Tether. And it's actually not used for payment at all, I think. Nobody's using Tether for payment. Yeah, not that I know. It's used for trading. And it's used for trading because if you are a trader in cryptocurrency um, and you're trading, whatever you're trading, you're trading Bitcoin on an exchange, you want to get in and out of position. Let's say you do intraday trading. Mm-hmm. When you get out of position, you're not going to want to go back in fiat, in U.S. dollar, because it has a lot of administrative cost and maybe tax implications. So you want to stay in crypto. So what you want is a way to be unexposed to crypto and certainly unexposed to, let's say, what you're trading, Bitcoin. So you want to go into an equivalent of the U.S. dollars. You you want to go into Tether. So Tether is pegged to the U.S. dollar. What the companies that built uh, Tether uh, did is that they say, okay, give me one dollar. I keep it in the bank. Trust me, I keep it in the bank. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anytime you want it back, you ask me. <laughs> and Professor, I give you back the dollar. That's what they said. And people believed it. And so far, if you look on coin market cap, you have about $2.2 billion of Tether in circulation. And yes, it is nicely pegged to the dollar. The, the, the curve is flat. Now, as you know, there have been a lot of controversy about Tether. I, I think that what's really surprising is that um, Tether, they actually announced that you cannot really take your Tethers and turn them into fiat currency back. So any thoughts at why, and why is it the case that people still believe in Tether? So you, you, you're actually right that in the terms of services, at some point they'd say, well, we make no guarantee at all that we could give you back your dollar. Which is crazy, it right? It is crazy. Now, when called upon it uh, by the, the cryptosphere, then Tesla said, oh, yeah, uh, we're doing that because 
maybe legally we cannot give it to John, let's say if John uh, is a criminal, right? Or maybe there's some anti-money laundering constraint. So we cannot put in a contract that will give him back his dollar. Uh, but, and then people con- continue to complain. So they actually remove that, as I understand it, from the terms of services. Uh, so, uh, but they're, they're not a U.S. company, so if they don't give you your dollar back, what are you going to do? I mean, we're not, we're not even sure. It's not even official. We know who they are, but mm-hmm. on the website, I don't think you have the name of the principals of Tether or Bitfinex, its sister company. No, you, yeah. you do not. Yeah, there's, there's only a few people that I think have been pegged to, to Bitfinex. And then the idea is that there must be a working relationship at the very least between those two. But there's, there's not much that we know. You know, which, which you, there's a lot of directions that, that we can take this. So, you know, I think that the natural follow-up is to say, okay, a blockchain is supposed to create trust in, in a system. Uh, and it's supposed to be secure and it's supposed to be immutable. Tether is not trustful, or there's there's not a good reason to trust Tether, um, and it may or may not be secure, and uh, you know it, it just seems counterintuitive to use Tether if you're interested in, in blockchain in general. So there's got to be a better way to do this, right? Yes, yes. In in that mystery of Tether, there's probably I know there are papers and Professor, you, you wrote some on, on this uh, topic. So there's a big mystery about Tether. Maybe one day there's a book or certainly a, a case study to be written fully about about Tether. Um, so is the money there? Is the money not there? The argument is that they cannot tell us where the money is. Otherwise, it would expose them to too much. They, so there are legal reason and practical reason why they, want, they don't want to tell us where the money is. People think it's in Taiwan, and so they hired an auditor. Then the auditor and them parted away. We don't, we're not sure who fired whom. <laughs> <laughs> so it is, it is problematic uh, uh, for sure. But the point I always make is that if, if there are two schools of thought. One school of thought is the money is not there. Or a big chunk of it is, is missing, right? They took $2.2 billion of dollar, and they took it away. And so, Professor Markovich, when you want your dollar back, it's not going to be there. Unfortunately. So that, yeah. that, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one scenario. But if, now, the other, the other and, and in cryptosphere, we love conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. So um, that's flourishing all over YouTube and all over Twitter. Now, my view is a little bit different, which is that if that were the case... Why would people still trust Tether? The market cap hasn't gone down, so people are still using Tether the way they did before, and the price per coin is still at one. How would we explain that? Now, one could say, well, Bitfinex is, uh, is really the place where people are using Tether, and they're in cahoots with Tether, so funny things are happening there. Possible. Uh, now, the other, the other point about this is that it might be that, uh, and, and I know a few people who know People who know, <laughs> but uh, is, it, it's possible, and in my view, likely, that they did not leave the money in dollars. I mean, that would be silly. That would that would be that would be nearly financially criminal if you get two point two billion dollars not to invest it in something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So why did they invest it in, and when? Well, they invested it in Bitcoin, of course. I mean, maybe in other crypto, and when? Well, somewhat early. Okay. So they made a ton of money from it, right? They made a ton of money. So my point is that if they did not have much, much more than $2.2 billion, 
because they invested it in dollars. You mean the equivalent of $2.3 billion? They don't really have it in dollars. They have it in crypto, in other type of cryptos, whether it's Bitcoin or another crypto, that when needed, they can hopefully be able to sell and give you your dollars back. Yes, yes. The same way a bank doesn't have all of the money you invested it in its Mm -hmm. coffer. But, but doesn't this lead us into the same situation that we would get in with, like, the 2008 housing crisis where there's, you know, people, uh, maybe Bitcoin goes down and then there's a bit of a run on Bitcoin. So they want their tethers. And then yes. in order to get their tethers, Tether then has to sell Bitcoin. And that's going to create a further downturn. And the, so... Uh, you, you're absolutely right, especially now that it went down 70%. Mm-hmm. I mean, it went back up 20%, but, right? Yeah. So now actually is a... Maybe they invested in, in, in Bitcoin, they made a ton of money, but now Bitcoin went down 70%. I have no reason to, um, to, to say one thing or the other. I think they have more than $2.2 billion, but I'm not, uh, they don't pay me to say that, and I have no interest to say that or to say the reverse. Um, there's that uh, guy that I listened on, on YouTube that I really like. His name is uh, Richard Hart. I don't know if you, uh, if you follow him. He's, uh, he's an anti-Roger Ver uh, type. Uh, and he's a bit of a Bitcoin maximalist. And he believes also that the money is there. Very few people believe that. Most people I believe the money is not there. Yeah, I, so, think, I think Bitfinext uh, Twitter account has done a good yes, job driving uh, yes, the social yeah. message that it's, it's not there. Yes, uh, yes. But I think that I think that that brings up another interesting question in terms of um, the sustainability or overall the value uh, that a stable po- uh, coin is going to be able to create in terms of it's always going to be the case that you're going to have tons of fiat money given to you. Mm-hmm. And then you're always going to have this question in terms of, okay, so what are you going to do with it? Yes. And one way for you to go is to invest it in crypto, and then that is very, you know, risky. Right, right. Another way to go is to invest it in other other type of investments, but they can be as risky, or uh, the, it is still going to be the case that as long as you are pegging something to the dollar or to any other currency, fiat currency, you have these tons of fiat currency sitting somewhere. What do you do with it? Yeah. And the, the, the key decision is, do you leave whatever money you raise on the blockchain and with visibility, or do you took it off the blockchain in a Taiwanese bank or in gold or in anything else outside of the blockchain? And, and both are plus and minuses, of course. But if, if, if we were to start a new stable currency, the three of us, and raise $1 billion, we will have that, that question to answer. And, uh, of course, the different uh, coins are d- doing different approaches to stabilizing, but it's not that easy. So MakerDAO, of course, they have two coins, and uh, TrueCoin, others, uh, different approaches. Uh, and um, uh, so there is a, there's a lot of, um, um, I guess, expectations about getting a stable coin. Mm-hmm. to work with uh, trust. Uh, I mean, crypto was supposed to be trustless, but <laughs> turned out we still need to trust. Let's talk about MakerDAO. We, we've talked a little bit about centralized stable coins, but a lot of teams are working on decentralized versions of these. So what is, what is MakerDAO and what's the significance of MakerDAO? Right. So in, I, I have to do, give the caveat that I'm actually not an expert in MakerDAO. So I understand mm-hmm. a little bit, but both of you are going to have to add color to what I'm saying or, <laughs> or, or uh, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong. So my understanding of what MakerDAO does is that they have two 
coins. They've been around for three, three plus years, I think. They have two coins. One that is floating, meaning that it, it could go to the moon, as we say in mm. crypto parlance. It could really go way up. <laughs> Right? And the other one, they're supposed to be stable, supposed to be pegged mm-hmm. probably to the dollar, so it's supposed to be flat. And the one that is going to the moon is supposed to provide the, uh, the collateral, the resources uh, the, to stabilize the other one. Okay? Mm-hmm. So that's one element. The second element is that my understanding is that they leave all of that um, currency on the blockchain and they do loans. They do margin facility mm-hmm. loans. And the value of this is that the money is still visible on the blockchain. It's not going, like with Tether, on a Taiwan, in a Taiwanese bank or wherever it's going. So you can see it. You know it's there. So you know that the money is there. And you can recall it anytime you need it to redeem uh, the DAI, mm-hmm. uh, D-A-I, the, the, the DAI coin. Right? So that's, that's my understanding of MakerDAO. Yeah, and, and, and I think one of the big concerns there is the fact that, <clears throat> this is something we talked about before this interview, if there is a black swan event and all of these, these die, the, the currency that is stable and is pegged, uh, is tied to, say, the Ethereum blockchain, and Ethereum goes to zero, won't this take the stable coin to zero? And getting back to your original point about payments, if the you know, if, if there are long-term plays here with stablecoins and long-term needs for them, and one of those is a payment system, if there's any possibility that this will go to zero, you know, won't people want to then just trust U.S. dollars or trust fiat currency, and then we're back in the same position that we started with? Right. Well, it, that is true. Um, I mean, my view is that the stablecoin near term is not going to use, be used for payment anyway. And the reason I'm thinking that is that I don't think anybody is using Tether for payment. Well, no. I think that that has to do also with the of the scalability issues that you have with blockchain. And we still have a lot of um, technological advances that are needed for it to become actually a payment system, I believe. You know, th- you're making a very good point because um, where would it be used for payment? It would be used in Zimbabwe in Venezuela, where inflation is 10,000% a year. Right. Okay? But in, in these countries, uh, is, is the, uh, the, 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 the wallet, the technology, the, is, is it there to support? We are saying, for example, that in Zimbabwe, if we want a stable coin to be used peer-to-peer, it probably needs to be in, uh, of course, in your phone, it needs to be in a way that your phone doesn't need to be connected. Mm while you're transacting. So, John, I say, I meet you, I want to buy something from you, you got your phone, I have my phone, we want to use a stable coin to pay each other. Uh, we need to be able to do it even if the connection is not there. So, there are, you're right, there are some, and, and these countries is the first place, in my opinion, where payment really would take place. Because otherwise, in the U.S., you got Venmo, right? Does pretty good job, PayPal, right. Venmo. In India, and I, I go to India all the time. Every year I go to India. I love India. Um, I, I go to India so often, and I know so many Indians that um, I confuse um, Facebook um, algorithm. It thinks I'm Indian. <laughs> it sends me advertisements saying, do you want to meet other Indians? <laughs> but so in India, they have Paytm. Mm-hmm. So it's like, um, it's like Venmo. And it works very well. Mm-hmm. Everybody's using Paytm with their phone. It's not crypto. 
So you need to have a bank account. So for the two billion people who are unbanked, that doesn't work. And people who have uh, a, a situation like in Zimbabwe, that doesn't work either. So maybe you're right, Professor, is that, um, is that the, the conditions are not there yet for, for, for these coins to be used technologically. Yeah, now that's an interesting point. So I just heard about a, uh, a project yesterday that's saying, well, most people, in the long term, like most people are going to want to access this stuff on their phones. And they're going to want to connect in some way to a blockchain. So let's go back to Ethereum. They're going to want to connect and they're going to want to read the Ethereum blockchain on their phone, but they can't, the phone can't run a full node and it won't be able to for, for a while. So this project is trying to make it so you could actually run a full node or, or read a full node on your phone. So you're not relying on another service to read that node for you, which is happening now. Now, from what you're saying, it sounds like if, if that were to happen, so let's jump out two or three years, then you could potentially do payments in a country like Zimbabwe. Um, now, it, the, the next follow-up to that is, does Zimbabwe, say, need their own coin to do that? Mm-hmm. Could, uh, you know, we go to another blockchain, like a Stellar Lumens, which is coming to consensus every two to four seconds as is, and each block is producing, say, 10 to 15,000 transactions. So, you know, that seems for the foreseeable future like it's large enough to do payments. So then why, why would Zimbabwe need a stablecoin? Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's such an interesting question. And, of course, there are many views on, on, on this. Some people uh, who are a bit maximalist about crypto would say, no, no, we, we want to get rid of these fiat government-controlled money. But the, the government, the idea that a country or geography has its own currency is, a, is an idea that has a lot of history behind it. And in some parts of Europe, you have these local currency, uh, even more local than a country, mm-hmm. right? So th- there, is, there is a certain value for, I mean, clearly a, a government mm-hmm. without a currency. Uh, is it really a government? I mean, they cannot do much. I mean, they, they don't have the ability to use a currency as a tool. They, they're losing one of the primary ways they have to make money as a government, which is to print money, right? which is like a tax on everybody, right? Uh, and so if a country cannot use inflation as a way to raise revenue, uh, it's missing one of the main tools <laughs> it has to be a country. So if really uh, crypto kills the national currency, that would be perhaps, uh, to a degree, the end of nation states, mm-hmm. right? Now, that's a maximalist view, and uh, some people believe that, or they want that. And it's, it becomes politics and, and philosophy. But... Uh, a, a more moderate picture is that um, each country will have its currency. The same with Lithuania has a currency. Um, now Venezuela uh, uh, with petrol uh, uh, and um, Russia, Euroball, and, and maybe Zimbabwe with uh, the Zimba coin. Uh, now, if, we, if, if, if the Zimbabwe government develop the Zimba coin, uh, in a few months, it's going to become like the Zimbabwe dollars. It's going exactly. to be uh, huge inflation. Mm-hmm. And uh, so someone else in Zimbabwe should probably develop or underwrite uh, a private coin. It's going to be more about virtual currencies, that you're taking all of your you know, fiat currencies and you're making them digital rather than you know, the paper money. But the 
underlying, uh, you, you know, control that the government has is going to be exactly the same as you have with the fiat money. And I agree with you that it's not clear whether um, getting rid of it is actually something that you that you want to that you want to have, and what exactly are going to be the implications you, of that? You could imagine that the IMF or people investing in Zimbabwe would say, well. Here's your currency, Zimbabwe government, okay? You can use it. It's an e-currency. It works well. We audited the smart contract. Everything works well. Uh, except that the smart contract only gives you up to, let's say, 30% inflation a year. <laughs> and um, you cannot change that, up to 30%. And by the way, if you behave well as a government, uh, we can give you the key to get to 50%, right? Or if you don't, maybe less inflation. Uh, you could imagine a, that, that, that the currency would be controlled by the IMF. I, I don't know if that it makes Bitcoin maximalists happy or, or sad as power shifts then from the nation states to the central bankers. And yeah, the I, think IMF. They yeah. I think they will cry. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah so that, <laughs> Probably achieving the opposite thing that, that this, yes, whole, in that use case, this yes. whole technology was set out to yes. achieve. I, I want to go back to this idea of uh, a stable coin and um, we were talking before about utility coin and I want to think about whether you believe that there is a, a space for more than one coin like that to be active in the market where from what you were saying before it seems like there are so many uh, challenges and we can see how different coins are going to attack attack these challenges different, differently and there, therefore there might be competition in terms of different stable coins. But then if one is going to do a better job than others, then we're going to see this one sustaining and becoming the leader in the market. But then is it, so how do you think about competition in this space? Yes, yes. So, uh, well, first, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful time of, uh, of, of explosion of possibilities. Some people use the, the, the term Cambrian phase, like the Cambrian evolution, an explosion of biodiversity. And at some point, it narrows down to less. Right, right now, we have probably close to 2,000 coins yeah. already. Huh? And, and most of them were generated over the last 12 months. It's incredible. Uh, so the question is, some of these coins perhaps will be natural monopoly, that we want only one of this one. Others will be, no, we can have multiple flavors and, and some people will have coins that are pegged to the dollar, coins that are pegged to oil, like the petrol, coins that are pegged to gold. People have tried that already, not right. great successes yet. Um, I was in Singapore at that uh, um, uh, crypto conference and... Um, um, there was a group that was trying to create a stable coin uh, through securitizing and tokenizing diamonds, which might be a tall order. But uh, so my, I mean, my, my, my instinct tells me there are going to be multiple stable coins um, and that um, there's not a natural, it's not like there's a natural monopoly in having only one that does that is stable, there could be multiple flavors of of stable coins. And the differentiating factor different is is saying what they're pegged to. Well, but also the mechanism. I mean, I, I mean, arguably later on we'll figure out what is the best way to stabilize a coin, whether it's uh, programmatic, whether it's uh, 
uh, with collateral on the chain, whether it's with collateral of the chain. Uh, so we'll, we'll learn that. Right now it's really floating, uh, clearly. So I, I expect a lot of diversity in stablecoin. I don't know if 2018 will be the year of stablecoin. We said maybe it's going to be the year of uh, securities, right? Uh, token securitization, uh, which is the other $10 trillion, in a sense, uh, question. Uh, but for stable coins, um, I, uh, I, I mean, we'll, we'll have to see whether Tether Saga ends first, and then we'll have to see how MakerDAO and the couple of other high-profile stable coins do in 2018 to, to know what, what there is. Yeah, I, I'm interested to see what happens with these coins. Some that are pegged to other more popular blockchains, like we, we brought up MakerDAO. Some, uh, like I believe Nubit, is its own blockchain. So, you know, we'll see over the next year or two if one form emerges over another. Well, we hope you enjoyed the first part of this episode. In part two, we will dive into a discussion of privacy coins and touch on this idea of tokenized securities. As always, if you want to know more about fintech at Kellogg, you can reach us directly at fintechclub at kellogg.northwestern.edu or come check out our Facebook page. And if you liked what you heard today, please remember to rate us on iTunes and click that subscribe button to hear future episodes. That's it for now. Thank you for listening. Until next time.